Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is sculptor Patrick Doherty. Uh, he is uh, coming uh, next year to uh, install one of his uh, sculptures uh, sculptures on the USU uh, campus. A year of Arts is ongoing. We'll be going for in excess of a year at uh, Utah State University, and we're doing periodic uh, episodes of this program uh, based on that Year of the Arts concept. Uh, like the New York Times' the description of Patrick Doherty and his work, quoting from uh, them, uh, Patrick Doherty is a sculptor who weaves tree saplings into whirling animated shapes that resemble tumbleweeds or gusts of wind. He likes to say that his first artwork was his house, built from old barn timber, fallen trees, and rocks he dug from the ground uh, there. His rangy log villa started off as a one-room cabin and is his only permanent work. Most of his installations break down after a year or two in the wild. Uh, Patrick uh, Doherty's uh, work can be seen in a book uh, called Stickwork. His website is stickwork.com, uh, I believe, and uh, not net, stickwork.net. And uh, there is a uh, documentary, well, there's there's quite a few things out there if you just Google Patrick Doherty, but, Doherty, but uh, uh, one of the official ones is Bending Sticks, I believe, where you can see your work. Patrick Doherty, welcome to the program. Right, thank you for having me. I think we need to get uh, Patrick Doherty's microphone up here. <clears throat> Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So uh, you're going to install this uh, sculpture next year, next fall. That's uh, right. So this is a scouting trip, I guess. Yes, it is. We're looking around at all the sites on campus, mm-hmm. meeting people and trying to troubleshoot the various things that might occur during our installation. Right. Um, so I want to get into some of the history and the interesting ways you got into this work. But uh, I think the first question I had, the first uh, thing that really struck me interesting about this is, uh, usually an artist wants his work to last forever. You know, quote-unquote, nothing lasts forever, but uh, permanence. Your work is impermanent. Yeah, it's uh, you get one great year, one pretty good year. I always say the line between trash and treasure is very thin when you're talking about sticks. One moment you conjure it into a credible look, and then the next moment it's starting to fade. Mm. So what uh, what about that is I guess attractive to you? What why did you want to work in this medium? Where where over time it does? Oh, well, fade. I think that you know the stick the material itself has its its own life. It kind of reflects uh, the temporality of everybody. Uh, you know, it makes it a little bit sweeter to see something, know that you have to enjoy it uh, while it's still in good condition. Hmm. And of course, they, you take photographs, right? You can you can yeah. see your work that way. We don't often pine for a flower bed. We like mm-hmm. the way that it that it has its own life and mm-hmm. you know dance and theater and other forms uh, that are momentary that are sheerly pre- pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And the way people experience the, your sculptures, uh, I guess, would would be different person to person. What about what about you? Is there any? I don't know, melancholy about that impermanence? I think there was always the thrill of building. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the problem solving, the um, interaction with the public. I use volunteers, so I get to know people in the community. You know, it's really a thrill to be in various places and, and build something. We have an open building site. People can walk up and, and talk to us uh, as we're working. And that three weeks, you know, people go from doubting and maybe the first day you're there someone's calling the police that you've dumped the (laughs) material on the ground and those are the same people that are inviting you to dinner on the last day (laughs) so uh uh, how long does it take usually it takes three weeks to build something we usually get the material the first couple of days and then we start to work and uh we have a good process for 
for working, we ask people to come. Uh, we'll have a kind of roster or something. People come come and help us. Hmm. And so you you do this is volunteer. Uh, volunteers help you. Yeah, it's right. amazing that you know everyone has been a child and. In childhood, we have kind of the shadow life of our hunting and gathering past. If you ask a child uh, about a stick, they know it's a, a weapon, a tool, a piece of a wall. So mm-hmm. I kind of reawaken in adults those same feelings. It doesn't take long for people to get uh, the knack of working with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll we'll direct if if you're interested in in perhaps working with Patrick Doherty. I don't know how many spots will be open or if any, but you could uh, contact the uh, Department of Art at Utah State University. That's right. Uh, to possibly next fall uh, be be right there alongside Patrick Doherty as he builds his uh, piece. So right now you're scope scouting out sites. Um, what kinds of things do you look for? Well, uh, you know, you want to make sure that uh, we're looking at a site in front of the library off to the edge a little bit because there's the central core of campus where people are walking by every minute. Uh, college students, despite some folks believe that they don't do anything they are very busy so if you don't put something pretty close to the edge of a walkway they might not have the opportunity or desire to just step off and look at it so getting things in the mix makes a big difference Hmm. now a couple of months this will be september of 2018 that's right then in november you're doing an indoor installation at brigham young university that's exactly right so there should be a great contrast between exterior work and what has to happen within a in a space it it calls on different feelings you know you feel like nature is taking over when you see something on the inside on the outside it just can be grand but you you know you feel like it's a bit part of the landscape mm-hmm. i was talking with um a uh, his name is john luther adams a composer and he does uh, compositions he's he's over time uh come to uh, compose compositions designed to be played outdoors he said there was an adjustment period. At first, he was kind of thinking indoors, and when he first heard the composition outdoors, it was just swallowed up. <laughs> it's totally swallowed up. So he he's had to adjust over time. I don't know if you've had. Uh, well, to. I think that's true. Um, what happens with if you build a sculpture? You have to have a resonance with the uh, area around you. So shapes that you see might be mimicked and various other the scale has to fit the scale and you've got to remember there's all kinds of well-designed objects in that environment outside so you have to compete with a car parking meter great sign Mm -hmm. and so you have to build a piece that's cogent enough that it really directs a lot of attention towards itself Mm. now sometimes you'll uh you'll be build these pieces connected to uh you know say say bushes or or buildings or other times standing alone. Yeah, I think the great thing about uh, being able to build something on site is that you can intertwine it with the site, mm-hmm. and it gets, seems to be so much more like a, it seems like it's an issuance from the site. So mm-hmm. using architecture or, or pre-existing trees or sometimes there's, you know, you have no options. You just have to build in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. So every time you have to really think through what's going to be pleasing, where you start seeing something from, the scale that it needs to be and uh, how people will interact with it, where they first see it. All of these things add up to a really powerful work. Hmm. Part of your process, I know from uh, watching a couple of videos, uh, is you, you write down some keywords when, you, when you're on site. Are you doing that uh, yeah, here at USU? You see, yeah. I have my little yeah. uh, pad with me, and so I try to, you know, I don't do research per se. I just listen and f- feel like when I'm on site, I have an enhanced awareness a little bit. And so 
I try to get some starting points for things. A lot of times those can be key words. And you say, I wonder what that means. Mm. So I'm kind of a believer in the power of the subconscious to mm. translate for mm. you. So if you can just get a starting point, an edge of something, sometimes you can find a very powerful uh, work. Mm. So that's, I, you know, you can perhaps get a glimpse of Patrick Doherty on campus this week. <laughs> be fleeting around writing from one his, place in to his, another. In his, uh, in his notebook. <laughs> um, I was interested, I, I want to talk about place. Uh, and you uh, you gave, a, a, I guess, a brief interview to southritlarge.com. Um, and uh, they asked you to list 10 things I can't do without. <laughs> Number seven, I am embedded in my yard in the familiar trees close to my house and a gnarled redbud tree stump that's always been there. A sense of place is crucial to my equilibrium. So for you personally, and, and for, you know, for, for most people, I think that sense of place for you, it's your yard and, and your place. I wonder if there's any interconnection with, you know, with that and what you try to do with your sculptures. Well, there really is. You know, my house was uh, something I started prior to uh, being a sculptor. I didn't know I was a sculptor then and managed to g- garner a lot of material from the, the woods itself. And so I've continued some of that as I work, I'll go gather in the nearby location and try to get that material to come over and, and kind of it's still in, embedding things in the site. Uh, you know, I learned uh, to problem solve. I didn't know much about building. So the great thing, sometimes it, it is important to reinvent the wheel because as you do so, you discover things. That's particularly important for sculptors. Hmm. Um, let's take a, a quick break, and when we come back, I want to I want to get back into uh, your house. Seems to be a kind of a foundation for for a lot of this, right? Uh, um, I want to talk about that. Go back even further. Your your dad's a country doctor, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about that and talk more about uh, Patrick Doherty's uh, sculptures. You can, by the way, it it it, uh, it would be useful um, since it's you know radio. We can't uh, show you the pictures uh, to go to stickwork.net. Yeah, you'll and, like the uh, work and see the see the work as we're talking here. Uh, more following this break. Did you know that libraries in Cache Valley are being transitioned to the civic spaces of the future? Researchers have received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with libraries in northern Utah and the students they serve. They will involve students and their families in maker activities, which combine arts and crafts with technology and engineering. Teachers are excited to discover ways to reach more students. Many physics, biology, art, and shop teachers now have their students engaged in these projects. In North Logan, the library is already opening its doors to all kinds of learning activities. Community members are coming to participate in arts, crafts, and computer classes for seniors. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. On the next Radio Lab, the story of a chimp who never got the chance to be a chimp. It's called Lucy Growing Up Human. She quickly learned to hold her own bottle. At two months, her eyes would focus. A chimpanzee daughter in a psychotherapist's family. At three months, she was trying to climb out of her crib to go to people. She was so responsive to being looked at, stroke. Tragic tales of species confusion on the next Radio Lab. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Kane College of the Arts 50th Anniversary Gala of the Chase Fine Arts Center featuring actress and singer Kelly O'Hara, the Department of Music and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. Wednesday, October 18th at 7.30 p.m. Details at usu.edu slash yearofthearts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This uh, program today is a part of the uh, Year of the Arts from Utah State University. It'll uh, be ongoing for uh, actually more than a year. Year of the Arts, a lot of activities, and as a part of that, sculptor Patrick Doherty uh, will be installing a, a sculpture on the USU campus that September of next year, and he's on campus now uh, scouting out locations, getting ideas. Uh, he'll also be going to Brigham Young University in November of next year. So opportunity, that's an indoor uh, installation and uh, outdoor at USU, so you'll be able to at the I guess late fall of, uh, or into winter of uh, 2018, you'll be able to experience two of Patrick Doherty's works. Uh, the place to go to uh, view the works, be uh, interesting uh, for you to see those as we discuss it, that's uh, stickwork.net, stickwork.net. Uh, so Patrick Doherty, um, w- I want to go back a little bit, and uh, again, taking from these 10 things you can't do without. Um, and this kind of doesn't really have anything to do with your sculptures, but it's so interesting. I'm going to read this. Number eight. My dad was a country doctor in Bass, North Carolina Bass. Right. Uh, and he told me that in Nara's Pass, some folks chose to be sewn into their long johns on the brink of winter. <laughs> Personally, I can't do without a long soak at the end of each day. So sewn into their long johns? Well, that's... They, so they didn't have to put them on. That's the again. country way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so growing up, did you, I guess, is there any connection there? I guess you were a typical kid. You played with sticks. I played with sticks. Of course, you have beauty here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we stand anywhere on the campus and look out, you see these fantastic mountains. You could imagine being out there. Uh, in North Carolina, we've got more tree cover. Uh, maybe limbs fall. Kids play. Mm-hmm. We built a lot of forts and I suspect in some kind of subconscious way that's influenced uh, some of the larger works that I made now. Hmm. Uh, let's see, as you as you grew up, you uh, did go to college. What, what was your degree? I was an English major okay. early on and then health administration, and then finally uh, back to uh, some two years working post-grad in, in, uh, in the art department at yeah. UNC. So you were, uh, you say you were 28 in the army when you decided to buy this property and 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 build a cabin is what you were. You're yeah, going well, to it, build, yeah. I had only one house in me, but I've had a lot of building size sculptures since right. then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, it was the problem solving event, and that's what sculpture is in and of itself. If you don't know much about the material, you try to exploit the various aspects of material to a good end. Uh, so. Uh, I guess you could do problem solving, just regular construction. You, what, what, what was that impulse to want to make this out of rocks that you found? You, you essentially built this from what you found on the property. Yeah, right? kind of pick up dendritus and mm-hmm. cast offs of things, and and uh, kind of you know kind of build an illusion and in a way build a house that you could live in, mm-hmm. where you could live your own aesthetic, which seemed to me to be about being outside and uh, the joy of uh, 
the natural world. Mm. And you said the 10 things you can't do without. You're embedded in your yard. This is a way you're yeah, you, embed yourself with, with the found materials and, here on the house. And even though I, even though I uh, travel quite a lot, I can always come back there. I always feel like that that's my the, the starting point for many of my feelings and um, the ways that I approach sight, which mm. is what I have to do uh, each of time for 10 times a year at various places to kind of accommodate myself to the site this sculpture is going to be on and, and somehow build a reciprocity with the site. Mm-hmm. You said build an illusion. We could expand on that. What were you? Well, of course, I, for for me, I uh, maybe the back to the land thing is an it was an illusionary thing. Mm. If you read about uh, log cabins and see these pictures of Thomas Cole, uh, you think that people are really happy, you know. So somehow the uh, I don't know the hippies of the '60s got in their mind that living on the land was just a a beautiful thing. Mm. Luckily, we had uh, commerce and various uh, parts of the economy around us, so it was a little easier. I understand the mm-hmm. first uh, people that had to live inside houses and so forth, we could kind of be live the illusion. Interesting. Uh, so this was the 70s, right? Was yeah. Back to the land movement, and you yeah. were, you. Uh, I guess you got the books. and uh, Yeah. Then Scott and Helen Nearing, How to Build a Stone Wall. Mm-hmm. Some of those things were affected me. Yeah. But at the time, you were, I guess you were into it, but as you said, you had the commerce around you. You could see that uh, that was needed, too. Um, I wonder, over time, have you, you know, where, where the Back to the Land movement has gone, and you personally, has there been any parallels with that? Or? I think that you give, you have starting points, and you give those up and move on. <clears throat> you know, I think it's a, your life is a rolling, uh, new awareness, constant reaction. And so I, I realized that building a house was really not, what I was meant to do. I was really meant to uh, build sculptures. And mm-hmm. uh, the problem solving that goes with that, the the joy of seeing people's reaction to it, you know, for me, uh, it's not like building a, uh, uh, doing a painting in, in your garret and not caring whether people like it or not. I really am very interested in, in how things impact uh, the public and individuals. And, uh, you know, one thing about an English literature background is that you not only read the novel, but you try to figure out why it's powerful, how mm. to use conventions that you have to empower the imagery. Mm. So that's, I imagine most artists would 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 care about that, how it's going to impact people, right? They do, but probably mine is a bit more extreme because yeah. I'm willing to let people talk to me about things. Right. Uh, I feel like it takes the 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 pain out of viewing art in some way if you're not in, uh, completely educated. Even educated people don't feel like they're equal to whatever artists are trying to do, so mm-hmm. sometimes they feel less. Uh, I think it's always better to empower people and talk to them about the work and why uh, why you like it, what it's trying to do. You can't lead the witness. You have to mm-hmm. let people make their own decisions, but you can be kind. Uh, so that is a part of it. It takes three weeks, right? right. And and you do allow people to come up and, yeah, we, and, and talk we, to you. We don't have any, any walls. It might be consternating to some artists, but uh, right. if you've had children, you know you can talk and think in two different parallel worlds. Mm-hmm. So you can continue doing your work, but still uh, you know, answer people's questions and, and let them know what you're doing. Are you surprised uh, by, by what people, you know, people's reaction 
through those conversations is to your work? Well, I think that it's helped uh, my work and, and built more depth to it. Uh, what happens is that I think a good sculpture is one that causes lots of personal associations. In other words, you find personal starting points in something. Sticks themselves have a lot of impact on people's thinking. Um, there are a lot of closet stick gatherers out there, mm. but also you see bird nests outside your house. You're kind of amazed. You see indigenous work. You you know, there's a lot of uh, examples of of kind of stick things out there, and uh, I think it, it stirs your imagination about a walk you've taken, about the first moment that you were under a lilac bush and re- realized that you weren't a tree, mm-hmm. that, you know, you were an independent child, and, you know, you're seeing the world and you've separated yourself out. Those moments tend to be very crucial in people's uh, deeper thinking, and so uh, this work tends to awaken those ideas. It's interesting. We talked about sense of place earlier, and you uh, um, you started out working with maple. Yeah, I work with maple quite a lot. Um, I am will work with any material. If it in Hawaii, it might be strawberry guava or Java plum or coffee tree. In the mid Midwest, it might be Siberian or elm or uh, because uh, some kind of dogwoods, uh, like a little rough leaf dogwood. In the eastern coast, um, pretty much from Maine all the way to Jacksonville, Florida, you can find maples. I like red maples quite a lot mm-hmm. uh, because they have the coloration. You know, uh, sticks are tapered, and so what I'm making is kind of a drawing style. And when you hit a piece of paper with a pencil, you tend to make strike it with one weight and finish off with another. Mm-hmm. You're really making series of tapered lines. That's what makes a really effective drawing. And so if you organize the tapers of these sticks, if you view them as sticks— I mean, as lines with which to draw, you can start building surfaces that are quite compelling. Mm. Uh, so uh, you you do work with what's available on, on site. What, what will you work with in Utah? We'll probably work with willow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have quite a bit of willow around here. Of course, you have Russian olive. Everybody wants to give that away by the truckload. Oh, yeah. It's got a little thorn on it. Tamarisk is another thing you have, but it's a bit brittle. So uh, willows are probably pretty good. I saw a few elms here and there. Uh, you know, we have to look for places that um, it's all right to cut. Um, you know, sometimes there's some ongoing activity of, of removing materials. Uh, sometimes it's development. I would say urbanization is what provides most of my sticks. Certainly on the mm. East Coast, there's a lot of new development, and they're constantly clearing. And uh, a developed forest really doesn't have many sticks in it. Mm. They're all in the upper story. They're not little saplings on the ground. And those little saplings, if, if it is a, a, a such a forest, those little saplings, many times they're, they're shaded out, right? So you Generally, that, yeah, go and harvest they're, those. They're, they wouldn't survive anyway. They won't survive. And a lot of times it's we're stopping the bulldozer along the road and say, could we come back with a crew and take this? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and they're also now uh, through various – uh, there was biomass, uh, is, which is uh, cutting things, uh, uh, growing uh, small willows in order to feed furnaces. Uh, I'm not, not sure it's gone on that well, but certainly these plantations of willows are around. And so a lot of times I'll just capitalize on someone that's growing willow as a crop. They can cut it off and it grows back the next year. So mm-hmm. it's more like cutting your bushes, but they can get repeated crops from yeah. the same stools. It's interesting the the process you call it. You could call it the industrial process. So you'd, you'd, you and your volunteers go out. You'd cut the willow, um, load it into trucks. In one video I saw it was a U-Haul, you know, truck, uh, and uh, they're 
they're quite heavy, right? They, the saplings have a lot of water in them. That that's right. We're using the flexibility, the green stick. The if it's too dry, you can't actually use it. So a lot of times we'll water. Uh, sometimes we'll submerge them in water, and mm-hmm. if it, they have to uh, last for a while. And uh, so they need to be good and green and flexible. Mm-hmm. So you, you take the saplings to site, and then once you actually begin, as you say, maybe somebody calls the police because they don't <laughs> they don't know yeah. quite what's going on. <laughs> yeah. But then I imagine crowd would start together. Well, we do. A, um, we do. A, I'm doing some kind of sketch, and I get an idea that it's going to how it's, how it's going to work, and then we lay that footprint of whatever we're making out on the ground, mm. and drill a series of holes, put some bigger sticks in there, some uprights, and then we'll set a scaffolding around the whole system and we'll pull the shape we want. So if we want something to lean over precipitously, we pull it over Mm. and make the shape and we'll uh, go around and put sticks on it and make kind of a uh, nondescript uh, overall shape. And then we applicate to it like, you know, making a canvas and then drawing on it. Right. And uh, in a sense, the canvas is the surrounding countryside that's right we're that's, we're re- reflecting a little bit in our work uh the work of uh, agriculture and also uh some of the land the feelings of the landscape mm-hmm. around what's well, generally what's the scale and again i'll invite people to go to uh, stickwork.net to see and usually have people uh, standing in front of your sculpture to give them scale but it's uh, what's the scale usually well sometimes as much as 25 feet tall and maybe it takes over a, quite a bit of space uh I've just been working in Montreal, and we made two humongous pieces there. And so uh, one was a kind of big temple-looking thing and had a big oculus in the ceiling, kind of an observatory of sorts. And the other was kind of based on a Celtic knot, which Mm -hmm. was kind of an endless loop, something like you might see in the vegetation in an illuminated manuscript or on some kind of uh, tattoo that comes from early times. Mm. Now, what to... What was you know some sometimes this comes from the subconscious I guess but there's, was there something in that that tied it to the surroundings? Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, for the, the you start out with an idea, but then you start blending, mm. and as you're working, you're, it's a very reactive situation. So from the same base of sticks, you could come up with a thousand different ideas. So at some point, you just take and throw the your plans right over your shoulder and start working on the thing as mm. though it. It belongs there, and that is and is being reacted to, in terms of scaling, in terms of uh, mimicking the shrubbery or the buildings or the architecture around you. Mm. So you say you get a good year out of a out you get of a one great year and one, one great pretty year good year and, and one pr- okay. Some sometimes you get more because uh, you know the cold in the winter, for example, in in Montreal, the cold stops every uh, all drought. You know, so in fact, uh, if you use willow, sometimes they'll root as well. And so there's a little bit of living material right at the base. And sometimes that greens up the piece and makes it kind of confusing as to what it is. Interesting. What, <laughs> do you like or dislike that? Or that that's just becomes part of the art? Well, I like it. And some, sometimes, uh, you know, I've had an occasion which I was working and a fellow comes up and he said, where'd you find this? And I say, well, I'm I'm making it. He said, I know, I, I know you found it in the mountains, and in North Carolina that might mean some up some cloudy draw where mm. all of the inexplicable things might exist. You know, so mm. uh, you know it's uh, sometimes things mimic so closely to some 
something in the natural world that you're not really clear whether it's man-made or whether it's a kind of a natural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That must be a very pleasing blending, right? You're not quite sure? I really work at that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, nature as we imagine it is about flow and, uh, you know, some, some kind of movement. And uh, we imagine it as kind of a living thing. And so if you organize these saplings in a certain way, then you're, you jump to the conclusion that, in fact, it's kind of a living, moving object. And so all, all of that is really about a drawing style that you, you work at. Mm. I wonder, uh, the, over that, what, two or three years that the sculpture exists and degrading over time, and then finally totally, you know, I guess back to nature, um, do you go back uh, oftentimes, I don't really get to go mm-hmm. back and yeah. look. Uh, I've got. You're, you're building a bunch of other sculptures. I've got something in the nearby at Duke at Duke Gardens at uh, Duke University right now, and it's close to my home. So occasionally, I'll go over there and do some fix up. So I'm kind of following that one to see how it proceeds. Generally, you get two good years. So in other words, it's not falling down at the end of year. You just try try to take it down while it still looks good because it is, in fact. A public work, you know, mm-hmm. it can't just look too disheveled. Okay. Oh, I see. When it gets to a certain point, you take. Yeah, it down. you just end up taking it down okay. before it looks, you know, yeah. like it's too worn out. You yeah. know. Okay. So it is a public sculpture, but it is out of impermanent, um, you know, biodegradable material. And if you do a good job, then people protect it. Yeah. So there is a, a a vulnerability about ephemeral work. Uh, you hope to. Uh, do capture people people's imagination so completely that they're willing to protect the work, you know, mm. because uh, generally you don't see people ripping up the flower beds. Occasionally you do, but uh, I think that it's important to have a workaround that seems tentative. Yeah, I want to I want to get into a reaction. I'm sure you get uh, you get feedback from from the you know the the consumers of of the the sculptures uh here is uh this is a reaction a comment to the the list we've been talking about 10 things i can't do without and this is from anna lyon uh who says i i uh i was privileged to attend guilford college in greensboro north carolina when you assembled your sculpture in our quad i watched as you and your team of volunteers pulled your piece together with fascination took many pictures later over months many hours of the day inside and out and what I love the most is how your work evokes playfulness. I filmed a professor's wife and child playing there. Hide-and-seek, gleeful squeals, a sense of whimsy, and of course flow and continuity with the surroundings, but especially the play of light on and through the branches. It always brought me uh, the quiet, maybe tremulous mystery of the deep forests that uh, I wonder says on as a child. And then I wanted to read this part. Um, she goes on to say, I created my garden in Kernersville, North Carolina, on and in an acre of land, in response to the many uh, microclimates that were there, eventually combining wandering paths through beds of flowers, trees, and shrubs, planted with a knowledge of scent and texture and wildlife, insects, and season. One day, a family strolled by and asked if they could visit. Their three- or four-year-old toddler got it. Paths, he cried, went tearing off into the mystery and adventure. <laughs> that was good. I wish yeah. I'd have written that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's, you know, childlike wonder. And we've been saying that, you know, maybe everybody plays with sticks as a, as a, as a child. You, you get to evoke some of this. I do. Working with the material, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's got its own way. And uh, it's captivating material in and of itself. Uh, you know, I think that uh, using it well starts promoting 
uh, feelings and the and the viewers. And you know, a lot of times they're thrown back to their childhood moments. Sometimes, uh, you know, you remember your first tryst. Uh, you know, there's just uh, a lot of ways that uh, one of the things I, I think is that people are enamored with uh, simple shelter, and you see that you know, in fishing shacks and uh, scrap shacks of various sorts, and uh, you know, adults taking the windows from their their house, the old ones, and they put new ones in, and they go build them a little solarium somewhere down by the creek. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that simple shelter is one thing that is. It means that we could go out there, maybe back to the Garden of Eden, back to where we don't have, or we're not, uh, we don't have the baggage of our contemporary life. We could just go out there and breathe with the other animals. So, mm-hmm. I think that's a very compelling feeling. Mm-hmm. Or, or back to your tree fort tour. You know, yeah, it might not be realistic, but yeah. we don't live in, you know, in our minds, we don't live in a realistic place. We get to play around. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's, it's, it's. We you know we can create whatever we want. In, in that space. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear some uh, some stories, uh, but reading some stories, have you tell a few stories <laughs> of uh, that interaction, which is a very, it's, I guess in a sense, it's part of your, part of the sculpture. You, yeah. you allow <laughs> people to come up and, 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 and talk to you. Um, and uh, you've been at some very interesting places, some 200 sculptures now, in excess of 200, that you're just, 10 a year, I think. 10 right? a year, yeah. And uh, Patrick Doherty is coming to Utah. Uh, well, he is in Utah right now. Obviously, he's in studio with us, but he's, uh, that's in preparation for a uh, sculpture that he'll be building on the Utah State University campus in September of 2018. And then November of 2018, he'll be doing an indoor installation uh, at Brigham Young University. And uh, this conversation is part of the USU Year of the Arts. You're welcome to join this if you have a question or comment for uh, sculpture Patrick Doherty, 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, or you can get an email to us, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Kane College of the Arts, Celebrating the Year of the Arts and the 50th anniversary of the Chase Fine Arts Center. Demonstrating the unique power of the arts to illuminate, transform, and inspire the human spirit. And the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau. uh, Showcasing outdoor access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more is available online at explorelogan.com. John Saunders was one of the top sportscasters, but he struggled with terrible depression, and now his widow says she wanted his story told. I hope that it helps somebody. I hope that people realize that you can't just suck it up, that you do need to get help. Next time, Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now, today at noon, on Utah Public Radio. Young people just getting started in this economy are struggling to afford housing. Baby boomers may have the answer for them. Our house sort of begs to have people in it because it's sort of empty with just two people. I'm Kai Rizdal. Different generations under one roof, just not family. That story coming to you next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Williams. This is Access Utah. This episode is part of the USU Year of the Arts. We're doing periodic episodes uh, for the next year as the Year of the Arts proceeds. And uh, sculptor Patrick Doherty is with me in studio. Uh, quoting the New York Times, he weaves tree saplings into whirling animated shapes that resemble tumbleweeds or gusts of wind. And uh, that's a pretty good description of many other descriptions of his work and a good place to go to see, and it, it, it's, uh, it's good to actually see the work, is his website, stickwork.net, stickwork.net. Um, and you're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. So I was reading uh, some, I think it was a video, there was, uh, I guess, uh, one of your instructors at the University of North Carolina when you went back to graduate work, uh, uh, he said you were you were a good sculptor with clay, um, talented, but your that wasn't where your heart was. It was <laughs> it was it was sticks. Yeah, well, the you know sticks are a, a kind of greenware. That's the intermediate state before you fire clay. Mm. You can mark it much like clay. So I think I probably took some of the intuition that I had with clay and moved it right over to something that was a bit bigger mm-hmm. that fit my style better. Well, these are you call them sculptures. They are sculptures. I. Of course, I'm a sculptor, so I mm-hmm. feel like anything I touch is a sculpture. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my deciding point. So, you, you, the original stick works were smaller, right? You did a couple, a few. Yeah, I worked a, a little bit smaller, and then fairly quickly started doing more building size work. Yeah, what was that transition like? Was, was did you always have that goal of getting to that? Not know, really. Uh, and big. I think that you know uh, when you're uh, coming right out of school, you have the feeling that you you know you're making table type objects for sale but then I just got a wild hair I guess decided I would uh, build something that went through the window mm-hmm. yeah. uh, out the back door you know that uh, you had the possibility of more vitality and more interaction with the uh, with space yeah and this career is a is a second act right you you had a regular career well I started or? out in health administration yeah um, I, I believe in administ- good administration. And of course, one thing I do is work with organizations all the time. So I'm not afraid of organizations. Mm-hmm. So it's it's easy to for me to uh, to feel comfortable uh, meeting with people here at the university right. and trying to work out these problems that uh, initially arise when you suggest you're going to bring sticks in the house. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> There'd be some problems to work through there. Yeah, uh, but that takes. Take some courage, you know. You, you, uh, you. I imagine you had some security there, and then at some point you say, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build sculptures." Uh, maybe I've been rash, yeah. but I have to say that I've had thirty plus years of working as a sculptor, and it, it's been really good. I, mm. I encourage anyone to break away and to live their dream. Mm-hmm. At least, at least go for it, right? <laughs> at least go for it. May, may not make it. May not be able to make a living at it, but. Uh, well, I think that if it. you give yourself the same amount of energy you give others, a lot of times you wiggle a good career and a living from something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you encourage people to, to, to break away. How would you, what would you tell them to, to you know, to like Cortez, burn your ships or you maybe have a nest egg to, you know, you, you need to be prudent, right? But, yeah, I think but it does you, take some courage to do that. I think you have to be a little bit realistic and somewhat unrealistic too, you know, so uh, – I don't know. I, for me, it was getting a house that I didn't have to pay any rent. Mm. You know, I had somewhere to back up to. And, um, you know, I always thought that the, that sculpture should pay. 
It didn't have to pay a lot. It had to pay something, though. So it had to pay its own way. And I made a big attempt to help others who use sculpture and who uh, sponsor sculpture to see that artists need to be paid for their work. And so, you know, it, early on, it, and uh, I may have been the first sculptor that any museum ever dealt with. And I'd say, well, you know, I'm going to have to be paid. And they say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, a lot of times uh, I quotable quotes, you know, well, the person that's working with you, we have to pay them $10 an hour because mm-hmm. they have a family. And I mm-hmm. said, do you just hear what you said? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got a family as well, you know. Right. So, you know, a little by little, you're able to move your career and to uh, see it in more financial terms and mm-hmm. get other people to see that that's the way it has to go. If you mm-hmm. want art, you have to pay something for it. Mm-hmm. I want to have to tell a few stories. Um, as I mentioned before the break, I've been reading a, a few. You do interact with the public. And, and, and so it, maybe we can start with Manchester, England. Sound like a pretty interesting spot. Yeah, I was working at a place called the Red Rose Project, which was going to uh, reinvest the city with a new forest and uh, was building a piece on the corner in Manchester. And a guy came out of his house, came across the street, and I explained to him what I was doing. And he said, oh, that's fine. I said, I'll see you later. He said, oh, I'm not going anywhere. And he goes, gets a lawn chair, and he parks it right behind my butt. And he talks to me the whole time in the cadre of, Local women come down the street. We say, they say, we see Bingo Billy sitting over there. You're not giving him any money, are you? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am. I give him a pound a day, not to say one word to me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. good. That's uh, well worth it. I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> and apparently, this was across from a pub, and you got some comments from the. Well, we get constant comments, uh, you know, from uh, the onlookers. Uh, sometimes it's a kibitzing. But we have to take it as as part of the of the conversation, right? Right. Uh, and apparently, this was near a mental hospital as well. Well, yeah. Sometimes in England, they they turn out the hospitals uh, in the in the day, and they brought these folks over, and you know, let them go in the park. So we got to see various kinds of antics. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, uh, somebody climbed our scaffolding. Oh. And started shaking it, and uh, I turned to my workers. I said, "We just just get down." Yeah. So we everybody gets down, and you know the minder for our project comes over and says, "You get down off of that scaffolding." He says, "I hate my wife. I'm not getting down, and you can't make me." <laughs> so we end up going to lunch and hoping that by the time we got back, things had been settled. Yeah, yeah. And were they? Oh yeah, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just got an email, just a quick question from Steve. Uh, he says, are indoor installations impermanent also, or are they uh, durable, uh, longer, durably longer lasting? I do have one at the North Carolina Museum in Raleigh near my home uh, that is permanent. Well, that is semi-permanent. It's as long, it's at, it serves at their pleasure. Okay. They could take it down. But interior work, just like ancient baskets, can last forever. Uh, a lot of times... Uh, the work that I do interiorly comes out because it's part of the life of a show. And so, you know, a year, uh, two years, and they've decided to bring it out. Sometimes it's even less than that. Yeah. And uh, indoor installations that uh, come with their own challenges. They do. I mean, it's a, a points of attachment, you know, uh, that makes a, a big problem, you know, how to hook it and lean it or whatever you do. Uh, to make them stand up and make them viable within a space so that people could potentially walk through them yeah. and uh, enjoy the inside and outside as well. Yeah. 
There was an installation in Brooklyn uh, that I was reading an article about. You mentioned that this was for, you hoped it would be enjoyed by feral children and unruly adults. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, somebody will catch you off guard and you have something to say. <laughs> so, But I thought the feral children was particular, particularly good. Yeah. Which, which, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, you, you, you want kids to be, you know, yeah, run through and around it. And, yeah, hopefully you're drawing out the best, you know, yeah. that the part uh, for adventure. And uh, people love a surprise. They mm-hmm. like seeing something that they might have imagined if they had thought about it. You know, yeah. they see something and it epitomizes uh, some secret place that they've been dreaming of. And all of a sudden they're free to go and explore. Mm. Uh, you were in Japan. Uh, and you stayed, I guess, at a, at a temple? Yeah, I stayed at a temple. I, I was actually uh, uh, was going to be allowed to work um, outside this temple and lived there while I did it. Uh, sometimes uh, artists are being asked to take over some of these family shrines, and as I approached the uh, the place, I saw that, that it had had, it was uh, about 200 years old, so it had had the original straw roof covered with metal, and I say to Mr. Owaino, I say, I just saw a snake there, and he said, well, that's not the really the poisonous one, but if, if that one bites you, uh, you know, you should call my wife. I said, Mr. Wainer, does your wife speak English? And he said, no, she doesn't. And so at that point, I had to lay in the on my mat in the evening and listen to the kind of crawling around up in this straw roof. And I say to myself, God, you know, and so the moral of the story was that you can only lay there for four days and then you just look up at the, at the sky and attic and you just say just go ahead and bite me <laughs> <laughs> did you get bit no i did not oh, good somehow good. i managed to accommodate myself to the situation yeah yeah what's uh, what's the most unusual place you've put a sculpture in well i've worked in uh in uh melbourne australia i've worked in korea uh i was just thinking about in terms of stories that uh, I was working in Austria, and there was a, a valley next to the border with Slovenia. It had a series of castles down this valley. I was working castle number one. At castle number one, the thirteenth castle down the way, uh, belonged to the princes Liechtenstein, two brothers. And so I heard that I was going to get invited to dinner down in the castle, and I had all these massive dreams of, you know, uh, a lavish dinner. I get down there, and uh, we they say, "Come on, we're going to go around in the backyard." So. We go around there, and they had bought a Weber grill. Uh, they had gotten an American cookbook. They had gone to the butcher. They had ketchup, uh, mustard, and pickles, and uh, they managed to do a great job out there. And the whole family, all the royal family, stood there while I bit into the hamburger, and I said, you've done it. You've made the perfect American hamburger. <laughs> and Maybe you would have preferred to have the local uh, food. <laughs> I would have yeah. preferred to. Be regal. Yeah, yeah. But they were, they were being very polite, I guess. They were. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Um, what's your, uh, what's your, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I've just finished in Montreal, and I'm about to go to Lincoln, Montana. There's a sculpture park there, and I'll be working there, and then back in North Carolina at a museum, and then finish up the year in Florida, hmm. in uh in Miami Beach, yeah, that's a that's a nice contrast. That uh, so in Montana, you're using what's there, I suppose. I'll use willow that, mm-hmm. that we're gathering along a creek, and, and North Carolina will be working from uh, a, uh, 
Duke Forest is not too far, and they've been allowing me to gather there. And there's some land trusts there that are clearing fields, and I'll be gathering the material there. And in Florida, we'll probably bring the material in because mm-hmm. it's too difficult to find material down in, uh, by the time you get to Miami. What, uh, oh, so there's just a very urban area? Or what? Yeah, it's an urban area, mm-hmm. and a lot of times my sponsors just don't have the energy for uh, the idea of gathering material. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, this might be a good time to mention once again that uh, Patrick Doherty is uh, going to be in Logan, Utah State University, September of 2018. And I'm not sure what the situation is, whether they got all the volunteers set or, or whether you can be a volunteer, but uh, you could check with the Department of Art that would at be Utah great. State University, and you might be able to volunteer with uh, well, Patrick Doherty. Well, we Doherty's. use quite a number of volunteers, so yeah. we use about four or five in the morning, four or five in the evening, mm-hmm. some in the afternoon, so... That, what, what feedback do you get from them? That must be a satisfying experience to be, be able to work on it. And then once it's done, you you are a part of it. Well, it certainly helps embed the work in the community because if you're, it's not that easy to hate a sculpture if your neighbors are working on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, people do bring their families back to show them the place they worked and so forth. It, it's really nice. Uh, everybody's capable of, of doing it. Uh, you know, a lot of times we need a mix of people so that some people can climb scaffolding, get up on ladders. And, uh, of course, I see everyone here is in the, the can-do uh, point of view. You all do a lot of hiking and so forth. So uh, nice physically fit community. Yeah. Uh, is, there, is there anything on your bucket list with regard to your sculpture? Was it a place you haven't been able to go or something you haven't been able to, to do or scale you haven't been able to do that you want to do? Well, we've done a lot of really large things, but if you do, I've worked in Dublin, Ireland, where we worked around a tree, so we are able to make a tower that was 50 feet tall. Mm. So, you know, always you'd have to use some kind of support, because I like the idea of not having uh, wire, nails, or uh, anything else other than sticks. So sometimes you have to find natural phenomena to work on in order to something naturally occurring so that you can uh, intertwine with it and s- make something credible. Mm-hmm. Do you take suggestions? Somebody says, hey, I got a... Oh, I get suggestions every minute of every Oh, you day. do? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to keep my inner eye clear, All though. Right. Okay. You know, I, I take suggestions. I often say, I I didn't... I. I mean that I heard you. I didn't mean that I agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. So, so not necessarily. It'll it'll probably go in one ear and out the other. Uh, well, not quite that much. It yeah, might yeah. make make an impression. And okay. sometimes I do get good advice uh, from people, or that something someone says becomes a starting point uh, for something else. So the feedback for um, has been very profitable over the years, and I think that I've been able to true up my sculpture a bit mm-hmm. uh, and its importance by. By listening. Yeah. Uh, you got your son with you now. Yeah, my son has just graduated from college, and he's been working for me for a year. It, it's really good. He's very strong and capable, and uh, he's a potter, traditional potter by trade, and so it's uh, we're back to clay. Yeah, you're back to back to clay. Good. <laughs> and your, your wife, is she still a curator? Yeah, she yeah. works uh, as a chief curator at the North Carolina Museum in Raleigh. It's our, it's our major museum in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and she likes to work very well. Have you worked together at one of your I did. Uh, yeah. when initially, we met when I was working at the Phillips Collection, and she was a curator there mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. But, of course, now she's moved on. Yeah. I have to be forlorn, yeah, take yeah. care of my own work. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but uh, you, you were quoted in one article I was reading of uh, there's a different perspective, artist versus curator. 
that you have to have to work out. You know, I think that's really true. You know, the uh, curators have different points of view. Uh, you know, they're looking after a new show, uh, something that interests them. And uh, artists are a bit one horse chaise. They mm-hmm. are probably very compulsively attached to their manner of working, and so they I have a, have to work out all my ideas within one material. Yeah. Well, we reached the end of our time together. I just want to uh, say again that you can see uh, many of the sculptures, photographs of the sculptures, um, at uh, stickwork.net, stickwork.net. And there's a documentary called Bending Sticks that you can find out more about. There's a book as well. Thank you for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. I really be, appreciate being in your community. Well, we look forward to having you come back and, uh, and see the sculpture go up. Ah, thank you so much. Yeah, that'll be September of, uh, of 2018. It's part of Year of the Arts. This program's been part of the Year of the Arts as well. We t- we're talking with sculptor uh, Patrick Doherty. Uh, tomorrow, we're talking with Simon Tolkien. And if you find that name familiar, he's grandson of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he's uh, an author, and he's written a, a book uh, about uh, or set in World War I. Uh, so I hope you'll join me tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.